Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Muntz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center and your host for this episode. Monuments commemorating historical figures, events, and regimes can be found nearly everywhere. And yet we often barely notice them. At other times, though, the histories they represent can inflame passions and the monuments themselves become contentious flashpoints for their communities. My guest today is Mia Fuller. She's a cultural anthropologist who has focused much of her scholarly work on 20th century Italy and its colonies and on the legacies of Italian fascism. This year, as a fellow at the National Humanities Center, she is working on a new project that examines the monuments and symbols of Italy's fascist past that can still be found sprinkled in locales throughout the country. Some of these monuments are able to spark outrage, while others are quietly accepted as elements of the urban landscape. Mia, welcome to this podcast, and thank you for joining me. Thank you. So one of the places you study is the town of Sabaudia in Italy. And in particular, you look at a large but now largely ignored mosaic of Mussolini. Can you describe briefly what the mosaic depicts and why you find it so fascinating? Yes, gladly. It is a very tall, very broad mosaic. It's about 47 feet tall, and it's concave, so it looms over the viewer. And its principal scene is an annunciation. So the biggest figure is Mary. Above her is the Archangel Gabriel. We are witnessing the moment any Catholic would recognize in which the Archangel tells Mary she will bear the Son of God. But then on a plane just slightly behind this foregrounded scene, there is the figure of Mussolini. His face is recognizable, and he is holding a bundle of wheat in his arms. And why is he holding a bundle of wheat? He is holding a bundle of wheat for a number of reasons. Uh, Wheat is a good symbol for Catholics anyway. It always suggests life. This is a part of Italy, in English we call it the Pontine Marshes, that's about 300 square miles. It's south of Rome, north of Naples, along the coast. And for a couple thousand years, the entire area was marshy, permanently marshy, and very, very malarial. Under Mussolini, starting in 1928, the area was reclaimed, the land was reclaimed for agricultural purposes, which was a huge feat. Malaria was still there, although it was somewhat diminished by scientists, and over 3,000 families, about 29,000 people, were moved there in the early 30s to be the new farmer settlers. They came from the northeast of Italy, principally from the Veneto region, so they were Italians, although they spoke a completely different dialect. The area was dedicated to what is usually called in English the battle for wheat. In 1925, Mussolini um, declared a new program to reduce Italy's dependence on wheat imports. The country was importing about a third of its wheat at that point. So for economic reasons and nationalistic reasons, it all made sense to reduce Well, he couldn't reduce Italians' wheat consumption, but he wanted to reduce the dependence on imports. And so various strategies, including the manipulation of wheat itself, were employed. Um, And various parts of land, big pieces of land, were put to use. So this is what is represented as Mussolini as the inventor of the battle for wheat. In addition, he visited the area himself on five different occasions and participated, in fact, in harvest days. 
So the image in this mosaic represents exactly what he did on the 9th of July, 1934. The mosaic was inaugurated in 1935. So it's also a portrait of a particular day, which was remembered by all of the people who lived around this church when it was inaugurated. So now, more than 80 years later, what is the affect of valence, or, or how do people treat this mosaic, this image of Mussolini now on the side of this church? Yes. Well, that's exactly what got me interested in it. I've been visiting the area for over 20 years. I have visited this town, this mosaic, many, many times. I've visited all the t- towns, in fact. So I am aware of the monuments dating to the 1930s in these towns, and I always go and look at them and see if they've been changed. Um, I'm aware of recent monuments in some of the neighboring towns. This town is unusual because it's near the beach, and people from Rome or other cities not too far away will go there for a day at the beach or a weekend at the beach. So in fact, curiously, this mosaic with the picture of Mussolini in it has been seen by far more people than most fascist monuments in small towns throughout Italy. And at the same time, I began to notice that it had no sort of charge. There are places you can go to in Italy, most notoriously Mussolini's birth town, Predapio. People go on pilgrimages, they salute, they chant, they do slogans, they march. None of this happens in this town. In fact, nobody even stops to really look at this mosaic. So I have watched people ignore the mosaic. Um, the church is situated a little bit off of the center of town. So actually to go to the church, though, you really need to be going over in that direction. You wouldn't wander by it on your way to the beach. But I have watched parishioners go in and out. They never look up. No one salutes. And I have asked local shopkeepers and most especially the local guy in charge who owns the photography shop. And I've asked him if people come on purpose to take photographs. And he looked faintly embarrassed and said, well, on occasion, but very rarely. And in general, people have just expressed a kind of boredom to me. My sense is that in the town, although they're very proud of their origins as one of the new towns, very, they commemorate everything about the foundation, the architecture, their settler grandparents, the agriculture, all of that is very, very important. And at the same time, my sense is that if they could make that Mussolini and the mosaic go away without raising a fuss, they would. So what is the significance of this Mussolini being on the side of a church as opposed to another Mussolini, maybe on the side of a municipal building or in a train station? How are we to read that? Indeed. Well, he's unique. This is The first thing is that he's, he's unique. Um, there is one other Mussolini in a church scene, but in a different country. That's in the Church of the Italians in Montreal in a fresco on the interior, but it has a different significance because it specifically commemorates the Lateran Accords. So it's not actually directly comparable to this church, which is in Italy in a formerly fascist-founded new town. One way in which it's very important that he's on the church is that it's actually because the priest, the the parish priest of this church, In 1943, when Mussolini fell, 
And Italians all over the country started attacking symbols of fascism and pictures of Mussolini and sort of damaging portraits in particular. This one was protected by the parish priest. So people came to try to climb up and do harm to the face in the mosaic. And I, we know from the locals and memory local, the local memory that um, the priest ran out and stopped them. So it's unique because he's in a religious scene. There's none other that was made in Italy that I know of. And it is unique in that it was preserved also because the priest stopped it. What also makes this interesting is that this building, this church building, this mosaic on the church facade, none of this was commissioned by the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church had nothing to say about it at the time. If you look at their website today, the website related to this church, they disavow. They say, well, the Mussolini and the mosaic is a sign of how fascism tried to co-opt Catholicism, which is not untrue, but it's only part of the story because in 1935 the church was largely complicit with the fascist regime. So all of these ways make it meaningful that he's on the church. There are faces of Mussolini that remain. Some were partly damaged, some were hidden and have been sort of re-unveiled. And some of the damaged ones have actually been restored. So these are on various Municipal buildings, there's one in the train station in Milan where his eyes have been scratched out, but he's still there. Um, there's a building in EUR, a satellite town right outside of Rome, where his chin and his eyes were damaged. And then around the year 2000, I noticed that they'd been restored. So those are more frequent. But this church one is, is sort of unique in every way. It survived completely intact. And yet it's also the one that people have not argued over. There have not been debates over it. Um, so my larger question is, what causes some of these monuments to be what I call charged or to still maintain some aura? I mean, we know when there's a debate in the public sphere among Italians, and this might be through social media, and it might be in the press, or both. Um, so it's clear when there's a lively debate. There are monuments in Rome that have raised a number of debates over the last 20 years or so, maybe 25 years. And a couple of years ago, there was a now quite notorious article in the New Yorker magazine by Ruth Ben-Ghiat at NYU, um, titled, why are fascist monuments still standing in Italy? And amazingly, Italians took exception to this in the social media sphere. So there's there's really a lot of discussion among Italians quite publicly about almost every one of these monuments or buildings. Uh, if somebody tries to remove one, someone will object. If somebody wants to restore one, someone will object. So usually there's a lot of discussion, which makes this inertia around this, to some, very embarrassing mosaic in Sabaudia all the more striking. So I was actually going to ask you about buildings. So 
a picture of Mussolini as one thing, but there's also these remnants um, and testaments to the fascist past that are functional and maybe less explicitly tied to the image or the persona of Mussolini. How is it different to come to terms with a building or infrastructure or changes in, in the land that still have their fascist past inscribed, but we may not read them as obviously? Yeah, that's a complicated question. Um, under the fascist regime, Mussolini made sure a lot of construction took place. And when I say Mussolini made sure, I really do mean he was personally involved. This was not off his radar at all. He was very invested. And the state spent an enormous amount of money on infrastructure, schools, hospitals, train stations, post offices, et cetera, et cetera. And they're really, I mean, particularly if you know what you're looking for, there's really not a place in Italy that does not have these buildings or even small signs or, you know, the electrical substation, something. So any Italian of, of any political bent will tell you, well, we couldn't possibly tear these buildings down because we can't possibly replace them not in the sense of the infrastructure. So in that sense, the landscape is full of these buildings, some of them more emblematic than others. I mean, the ones that are really emblematic are the ones that were fascist party headquarters, uh, sometimes their town halls, but wherever there would be a balcony on which Mussolini would stand and make a speech, those are the ones that tend to maintain a certain aura or contamination or maybe even memory but it's kind of in the design of the architecture you can usually tell several generations have passed um in my own experience i mean i'm of the generation where italians say oh my god i hate that architecture that's just awful awful architecture i hate everything about it when i'm in my neighborhood and i see these buildings i turn away but in project a project i did in asmara the capital city of eritrea I was really interested to watch Italians. I mean, this is a place that's now a World Heritage site because of its principally 1930s Italian architecture. A lot of Italian architecture, much of it from the 1930s, and some of it really very fine architecture. And I saw Italians there say, oh, it's wonderful. So context is everything. Um, I've known a lot of Italians who really don't like fascist architecture in their neighborhood. But if it's fine fascist architecture somewhere else, it's okay. And so it's really, that too is extremely fluid in what it means. I think the New Yorker event was very interesting because what I think a lot of people reacted to was the fact that it was discussed in another country mm -hmm. by other people. Mm -hmm. I don't think this discussion would have been as big among Italians who, I mean, the building on the, on the article in The New Yorker and one that many of the discussions started to revolve around was the so-called Square Colosseum in the EUR part of Rome. This is a building you can't miss. It sits on a hill. You see it on the way from the airport into Rome. It's very, very visible, very distinctive. And is the home of high fashion now, And right? is now the home of high fashion. For many years, it was under the control of a military branch, then you, and you couldn't go in. I tried many times. I tried to get permits to go inside, and there's actually not much to the inside of the building, which makes it even funnier. But there are art um, exhibitions commissioned. I mean, it's, yes, now it's quite chic. 
How is the Italian memory of fascism different from, say, the German case, where there was also a cult of personality around Hitler? It's also a very troubled past. There's also lots of infrastructure that remains. But how are the two cases different from each other? Well, that's a very, very big question. Um, they're so similar in so many ways. The charismatic leader, the face of the charismatic leader, many, many buildings, very routinized rituals that connect spaces, buildings in them, symbols in them, motion through the spaces, chanting and song. And these things are all connected quite deliberately, first in Italy, subsequently by, by Hitler in Germany. What's very interesting to me is that they're, on the face of it, extremely different. In Germany, denazification is meant to be total, just like National Socialism, but the inverse. So the goal is to remove any swastika, any sign, any visible sign. Now, this didn't happen all by itself in the sense that Germany is also very famous among historians and many others for its very thorough effort to remember German participation in the regime, um, to never forget, to never forget certainly the Holocaust, but also many other aspects of the regime. So, so in, in Germany, you find this com com combination of wanting never to forget while removing the traces. And this is, if you look at studies of collective memory, that's a very interesting way to go about it. You want to remove the sign, but you want to remember the history. Italy, in a funny way, is the inverse of this. Unlike Germany, in Italy there is no single museum that no, no nationally sponsored museum or other form of expository narrative that will actually recount the history of fascism, what happened in World War II, over which many Italians are still in conflict. Um, and, and so there's been no public sphere coming to terms with Mussolini. You get satire about Mussolini, you get pictures of him everywhere, you can buy lighters with his face on them wine bottles with his face on the label. So it's the exact opposite of Germany in the sense that the image is everywhere and often the butt of a joke. So, and at the same time, there's no public mandate to remember a particular set of the more negative, the terrible things about, about the regime. So, but Italians are desensitized in many ways. They're not afraid of this image. This is the part that under, underneath it all interests me the most is that in Germany that means that the image of Hitler still has some power. Um, there was a Madame Tussauds wax figure of Hitler unveiled in Berlin in 2008 and the first day you could go and visit it a man bought a ticket. He bought his ticket and then he went in and tore the head off of it. And, and to me, that really suggests that that means that there's still a certain, a great, a much higher charge to the image than to the face of Mussolini, which you can see on an advertisement anytime. You, you're an anthropologist, mm -hmm. um, and you're treating a subject that's obviously very historically inflected. But a big part of how you do your work is that you go and you talk to the people who are living with these monuments and these memories. 
talk to us a little bit about the people you've interacted with over the years and the role they play in this work? Yes. Um, So in this respect, although I pay attention to the Italian media, for instance, and I've traveled to Germany a few times to go and look at these museums, really my place of study for now a couple of decades has been this area where the town of Sabaudia is, the place that we call the Pontine Marshes, 310 square miles. Um, And so this area has five so-called new towns. They were built from scratch in the 1930s, each of them in less than a year. So they were very quickly built and celebrated and inaugurated. And then there are 14 smaller sort of intersection villages where people would be able to have access to just basic services. So this has been my site. Um, this is this is where I'm very much an anthropologist. Um, and I've been able to go many times over the last 20 years. I have... Of course, done some very systematic interviews, semi-structured interviews with a set of questions, although often it's what anthropologists call participant observation. That's the the real realm of discovery where you, you go, you're there, you watch, you hang out, literally. Sometimes there are, I've actually been to one reenactment of, um, the, the, wrong side of World War II, so I was there. I wasn't part of the reenactment exactly, but people asked me questions before I asked them. They wanted to know why I was there. Part of the the gift of studying one area is that then you develop relationships over time. So there are people there who are local cultural figures, one author in particular, whom I began by interviewing rather formally, and now I just am in touch with, and I see them over and over again. So there have been conversations that have been maturing over a long time, and there are ways in which those conversations have shaped other people's work, not only mine, which is fun. We're in North Carolina, where debates around Civil War monuments have been prominent and heated. How can what you've learned about the Italian case of fascism and its legacies help us to understand the kinds of struggles we experience here in the U.S.? A good part of why I was really hoping to win the fellowship at the National Humanities Center was actually because of its location and because I really, I mean, not only do I want to know more about the Confederate monuments, but even the Italians who were arguing over the New Yorker article were invoking the fact that Americans are fighting over Confederate monuments. I mean, so there's a lot to, to learn and a lot to understand. So I came in that spirit and I came to town and I went to the Durham City Council meetings over the Durham Confederate monument that had just been damaged in 2017. So for me, it's per- partly a personal path of, of learning and trying to understand the connections between what happened in Charlottesville in 2017 and then debates over Silent Sam, for instance, which clearly these these relationships are there, but I understood them much better once I got here and I went to the city council meetings, this kind of thing. Now that I've I've learned more, I see that even though the questions I would bring to both cases are pretty much the same, when is a monument irritating to us? But why wasn't it for the previous 30 years or 50 years? That's really, I'm interested in the tipping point or the non-tipping point. You know, why does Mussolini holding wheat in that mosaic not bother people, whereas there are other Mussolinis that bother people a great deal. 
Um, why were those Confederate monuments there for so long, but after Charlottesville, they became uncountenanceable? In fact, I mean, Charlottesville probably might not have happened the way it did had it not been for the church massacre in Charleston. So this is really, my interest is in the ways in which one event recharges the monument, re-enlivens its aura, makes it become once again something that attracts people and angers people and pushes them to behaviors that maybe the year before they wouldn't have thought about. At the same time, the more I know about the Confederate monuments, the more I realize, well, this is actually in many ways quite different from <laughs> from the Italian situation. Um, in a in a broad sense, it's sure you can compare the American slaving past with Italian fascism, but in the specifics, that won't really hold. And and most especially, the fact that so many of the Confederate monuments were installed a generation or two after the end of the Civil War that is a difference. Um, because the Italian fascist monuments are pretty much almost all original. Mia, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for having me. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.